you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn to Romans chapter 13. We're continuing our walk through this grand letter from the Apostle Paul to the believers there in Rome in the first century, and we move on now to the 13th chapter. So we've only got four more chapters to go in this book, 13, 14, 15, 16, so it's it's my goal to be finished by the end of 2019, so no promises though. Um, we're, we're launching into this section here, verses 1 through 7. It's going to take us a couple, three weeks, whatever, to, to work our way through this. Um, but let's, let's begin reading verses 1 through 7, and then we'll pray and dive into this passage. This is the Word of God. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resist what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his, his approval. For he is God's, inst- God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. And honor to whom honor is owed. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for that picture that we have in Revelation 5 and Revelation 7 of the throne room, your throne room. Picture of what awaits us in Christ. Picture of your son receiving the worship that is due him. Father, we pray that we would live in this life in light of that eternal perspective, in light of what you have done for us in Christ, and in light of what you're calling us to in Christ. Lord, may we live this life in such a way that we project that we believe this, and that we want to see you honored and glorified. Lord, even even in how we relate to such a a worldly thing as government. God, we pray that you'd speak to us this morning from your word. We ask that your Holy Spirit would drive these truths deep into our heart. And God, that we would be a people that would honor you and glorify you even in how we relate to government. So teach us, Lord, and change us and be glorified through us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
One of the obvious things that we come to with a passage of Scripture like this as we're reading through Romans is how in the world does this fit in the context of this letter? It seems on the surface like an interruption in Paul's thought. In chapter 12, he's been talking to us about how we are to be transformed in how we love others. And then the verse 8, immediately following what we just read, Paul will say, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. So it goes from speaking about love in chapter 12 to speaking about love in verse 8 of chapter 13. And then we've got these seven verses wedged in the middle, talking about how we are to relate to government. And this led some commentators to conclude that this is just an interruption in Paul's thoughts, and it's led to all kinds of conjecture as to what was going on in Paul's mind, what was going on in Rome that led him to interrupt himself. But it's also led some other commentators, liberal theologians, if you will, to go to the extreme of saying that this isn't even Paul saying this. That someone else added this in later on. That it's such a diversion of what he's been talking about and so different from everything surrounding this that, that this is something that was added in later on. I would submit to you that we can reject that suggestion out of hand because there's absolutely nothing in this letter and nothing in this passage or the surrounding passages that would lead us to believe that this is not written by the Apostle Paul. In fact, the Apostle Paul even talks about this very thing in some of his other writings. As he writes to Titus, he tells Titus to remind the the brothers and sisters to be submissive to rulers and authorities. The very same wording that we find here, to be obedient and to be ready for every good work. And so it, 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 it's not an interruption. It is exactly in line with Paul's thinking. Plus, I think we can show, I think I can show that this passage does fit in line with Paul's flow of thought here for three reasons. First of all, in chapter 12, he's talking about how we ought to be transformed and how we relate to others. He's talking about those inside the church, those outside the church, those who would persecute us, those who would do evil against us. And as we begin learning about how to relate to one another, at some point, we have to face the fact that we have to relate to the government as well, because that's part of the culture in which we live. And so that fits with Paul's discussion here. Also in verse 19 of chapter 12 that we looked at last week, Paul said, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. Well, here we see Paul in this passage in verses 1 through 7 of chapter 13, Paul is laying out one of the ways in which that happens as God uses government as an arm of his own vengeance to carry out his wrath. But he also said back in chapter 12, verse 2, which is kind of the the umbrella over all of chapters 12 through 16. He said, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then all the remainder of chapter 12 was Paul giving lots of examples, example after example of ways in which we're not to be conformed to this world, but instead to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. 
And Paul knew that there would be a tendency for those who are resisting being conformed to the world, there would be a tendency to look at the world and say, the world is evil, and the world is evil. But there would be a tendency on their part for those who are constantly on guard to not be conformed to this world, there would be a tendency on their part to withdraw from the world, to isolate themselves from the world, to insulate themselves from the possibility of being conformed to it. And this is not what Paul wanted, because this is not what Jesus wanted. In his high priestly prayer, Jesus, in John chapter 17, he's praying for us, and one of the things he prays is that we would not be taken out of the world. He says, Father, I pray that you wouldn't take them out of the world, but that you would protect them from the evil one. He goes on to say, they're not of this world, just as I am not of the world. He says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, Father, so I have sent them into the world. And we say that we're to be in the world, but not of the world, right? That's what Jesus was saying. That's the heart of Paul in this. We're, not, we're, we're, we're to be in the world, part of the world, but we're not to look like the world. We're not to be conformed to the world. But there is this tendency in believers who are trying to resist being conformed to the world to withdraw from the world. And then in that withdrawal from the world, part of that would involve withdrawing and separating from all aspects of society, including that of government. And Paul knows this, and so he makes it a point here to address that. So we can't avoid relating to government and responding to government. It is part of our culture. It is part of our society. We can't just say, as some have, that government is a part of this fallen world, and I'm not a part of this fallen world. I'm part of another world, and so I'm not going to have anything to do with it. I'm going to ignore it. I'm going to avoid it, and it just doesn't work that way. It applies to us. We can't avoid it. It's part of culture. It's part of the society in which we live, and it's part of the society to which we have been sent to be proclaimers of the gospel. So how do we, as Christians, relate to government? This is the fundamental question that Paul is addressing for us in these seven verses. How do we, as Christians, relate or what is our response to government? Now, that's going to lead to a number of other questions that are related to this that are going to be difficult for us to unpack. Should Christians be engaged in politics? And if so, to what degree? To what degree should we be engaged in politics? We're commanded here to be subject to to governing authorities, but are there any limits on that? Are, Are there any qualifications to that under which it is right or maybe even expected for us to, in fact, disobey our government? What about civil disobedience? What about out and out rebellion against government? Under what scenarios, if any, is that right? Paul tells us here that the government bears the sword, that that's the job of the government, but Jesus said he who takes up the sword will die by the sword. So what does this mean for us as believers? Does that that mean that, that my son who's in the army is violating scripture and that we should all be pacifists? What is the purpose of government? This is part of what Paul's gonna unpack for us in these seven verses, the purpose of government, biblically. 
And then one of the hard questions that we'll have to wrestle with, and we'll touch on it this morning, is if Paul says that there is no governing authorities except for those that he has instituted, then what about Hitler? What about Stalin? What about Mao Zedong? What about the godless, ruthless, evil dictators throughout history? There are a lot of questions that this topic will lead to, but we must start with Scripture We must seek to understand what the Bible says and draw out some guiding principles from that and then apply those principles to some of these questions. Now, these first seven verses of chapter 13, you probably noticed as we read through through this, they're very different from the passage of Scripture that we just got finished going through the second half of chapter 12 of Romans. In chapter 12 of Romans, that second half, Paul hit us with these 30 rapid-fire exhortations, these these one after the other, these descriptions of how we're to be transformed and how we love one another in the church, outside the church, with those who persecuted us, those who are evil to us. And, And there was very little, if any, development of each of those ideas, if you'll recall. It was just one after the other. We're to do this, we're to do this, we're to look like this, we're to look like this. But there was very little development of those ideas. But now in chapter 13, in these first seven verses, Paul does something very different. He gives us, first of all, two very simple, straightforward, unambiguous commands. And then based on those commands, he spends the remainder of this passage developing a rationale for why we are to obey those commands. This section is much more structured than the previous one and, and given more easily to an outline. So let, let me, let me kind of give you an, uh, an outline, a snapshot of this passage before we dive into some of the details. I mentioned that there's two commands, and they're the bookends here. They're in verse 1 and verse 7. The two imperative verb forms, two commands. The first one in verse 1 is, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. That's a, an imperative verb. That's a command. He's telling us to be subject to the governing authority. So we need to know what that means. The second command is at the very end of the passage in verse 7 when he says, pay to all what is owed them. That's the second imperative verb. Pay to all what is owed them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. And honor to whom honor is owed. So those are the only two commandments in these seven verses. Be subject to the governing authorities and pay taxes to the governing authorities. That's it. Everything else in verses 1 through 7 is developing of this rationale for why we ought to obey those commands. And really the main point here is in verse 1. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. And then pay taxes is added on to the end as Paul also is developing his rationale for government itself, his purpose for government. And he says, hey, we ought to be part of funding that by paying taxes. So after the first command, be subject to the governing authorities, it's as if Paul asked the question, why? Why Why should I? Why should Christians be subject to the governing authorities? And he gives three reasons that we'll just briefly touch on this morning and then we'll unpack the next week or two. Reason number one, because all authority comes from and is instituted by God. Reason number two, because the government has the right to exercise punishment. And as we dive into that, we're going to see part of what Paul lays out as a purpose for government. One of the, one of the big purposes for government, biblically, is to restrain evil. And so 
government has the right to punish evil, to punish wrongdoing. And then reason number three why we ought to obey is because of the sake of our conscience. He says in verse five, therefore one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, which is the reason why everybody obeys government, right? Because government can punish you. But he says not for, for the believer, the reason why you obey the government authorities, you're sub- subject to the government authorities, is not just because of avoiding wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. And then after those reasons are given, Paul has developed alongside this his reason for government and his reason why believers need to obey his or her government. And then he says, we ought to be part of funding this by paying taxes. So what I want to do this morning is I I simply want to cover the first command and then uh, touch on that first reason and then we'll leave the remainder for uh, another day. So the first command in verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Every word of that phrase is important. There's only five words in the Greek And every one of those words is critical to us understanding this foundational command from the Apostle Paul. The first two words here in the Greek are are literally all souls. Every person. So nobody is excluded in this. No one can claim that they are not under some kind of governing authority to which they must be subject. So it's not just those who are under a ruler that they like and agree with. It's not just those who live under Western democracy where they have had the opportunity to freely elect those who are their governing authorities, but also those who are under totalitarian rule. Also those who are in, under the rule of communism or even tyranny. Even those who live under a ruler that they don't like or don't agree with. He gives no exception here. Let every person do what? The next word is be subject to. It's the Greek word hupatasso. It's fun to say. Hupatasso is the word here. Uh, Paul doesn't say here, I think we should know, Paul does not say here, let every person obey the governing authorities. He says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. is a subtle distinction there, but a very important one. Certainly the idea of being subject to a person or being subject to a governing authority carries with it, at least partly, the connotation of obeying. So that's part of it. But the word itself is not obey versus not obey. The word itself means to voluntarily place oneself under someone else. To place oneself under their authority and to act accordingly. To to live in accordance with that order. That's what the word means. Martin Lloyd-Jones notes that the root word of this word is a military word, a military term, denoting how soldiers are arranged in order under their general and subject to their general's commands. That's what the word hupatasso comes from. It's a recognition of authority. It's a recognition of leadership and order and that we act in accordance with that. And we see this all throughout the New Testament. And we see it all throughout God's created order. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 
Um, Paul talks about how there is this order, this hupotasso, even within the Trinity. Look at what Paul says. He says, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. He's talking about Jesus. God has put all things in subjection under Jesus' feet so that all things are submitted to him. Right? So Jesus is over all. We, we know he's the head of the church, but he's, he's over all. God put everything in subjection under Jesus. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he has accepted those who put all, he is, he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. In other words, all things are put under Christ. He, he is head over all. All things are subjected to him except the Father, except the one who put all things in subjection under him. And listen to what Paul says in verse 28. When all things are subjected to him, that is Jesus, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things under subjection under him. That is God, God the Father. So that God may be all in all. So even in the Trinity, there is authority. There, there is this concept of hupotasso, this voluntary submitting to one another. The son submits to the father. The father tells the son what to do. The son obeys the father. Jesus said, I only do that what the father tells me to do. So there's hupotasso even in the Godhead. Then we see this hupotasso also in the church. We see it in the home. We see it in marriage. Paul says in Ephesians 5 verse 24, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husband. So the church hupotassos the uh, Christ and wives hupotasso their husband. There's a recognition of this order. And so wives submit to husbands, church submits to Christ, and Christ submits to the Father. And so as with all of those examples, there's, there's no declaration of value or importance one way or the other. It's simply an expression of order. And in that vein, Paul says every person is to be subject to the governing authorities. Those are the last two words in that phrase. Those words, the governing authorities, literally mean the higher powers. That's what it literally means. And so some have looked at that and said, okay, this means that Christians are to subject themselves to the angels, the higher powers, the cosmic powers. But that's not what Paul is saying. Paul here is simply referring to those who are placed in authority over us. That we're, be, we're to be in subjection to them. And again, we ought to note here that Paul gives no exceptions. He notes no limits to this. There's no qualifications to this, at least in this passage. He doesn't say be subject to the governing authorities as long as they were elected fairly. He doesn't say be subject to the governing authorities as long as there are checks and balances within that form of government. He says be subject to the governing authorities. Now, I believe that there are legitimate exceptions that we will go over. But those are exceptions, not the rule. What Paul is giving us here is the rule. Believers in Christ... As you're seeking to live your life in a, in a world that is not your own. He says, don't be conformed to the pattern of the world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You're going to reflect me, and you're going to be 
be charged with living for my glory, displaying my glory to a lost world. And I want you to be subject to the governing authorities. And then trust me. Trust me with how it works out. That's the rule. And we got to keep that in mind as we unpack some of these exceptions. But that's the rule. The command that Paul drives home in this section. That believers ought to be law-abiding, government-respecting citizens. Citizens, Christians ought to be citizens characterized by their obedience to the governing authorities. In reality, we could say that, that, that Christians in any culture, under any form of government, ought to be the very best of citizens because of this injunction here in Scripture. So what are these exceptions? Let's deal with the exceptions so that we can get back to the rule. I, I want to give you two exceptions. They're, they're, they're broad categories of exceptions. But they're very different. The first, the first exception is when the government requires us to do something that would be a violation of the word of God. When the, when, when the government requires us to do something that would, that would be violating God's word, we are to obey God, not man. That's the first exception. The second one is when the government is so immoral and so in unjust itself that action must be taken to remedy that government. Now we could call the first obeying God rather than man. We could call the second one civil disobedience, if you will. The former is very straightforward, very unambiguous, very clear. The latter is not. When government requires you to violate God's word, it's very clear. God says one thing, the government says another. God's word trumps, no pun intended, trumps government. So we obey God's word rather than government. With civil disobedience, it's much, much grayer. And it's much harder to discern the right thing to do. And consequently, much easier to drift back into ungodly and unbiblical disobedience to government. Now, we see several examples of the first exception in Scripture where government requires followers of God to do something that would violate God's Word. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are preaching the gospel on the streets of Jerusalem. They're telling people about Jesus, that Jesus rose from the dead. And they're spreading the good news about a resurrected Christ on the streets of Jerusalem. And obviously the Jewish governing authorities, who were governing authorities over them, didn't like that. Didn't like that at all. And so they call them to task. So listen to verses 18 through 20 of Acts chapter 4 to see how this played out. So the Jewish governing authorities, they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So how did Peter and John respond? Peter and John answered, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must be judge. For we cannot but speak of what God, of what we have seen and heard. So Jesus was unambiguous in his charge to his followers when he left earth, right? He was, he was very clear in the Great Commission. 
He said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. This is what Jesus told us to do. It's a command from Jesus to talk about him to anyone and everyone. So when these governing authorities over Peter and John tell them, do not speak or teach in the name of Jesus, their response was, whether it is right in the sight of God or man to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. In other words, sorry but not sorry. I've got to do what God has told me to do, no matter what the consequences are. So the story goes on. They let them go. And what do they do? They keep preaching Jesus on the streets of Jerusalem. They do it again. And they bring them back before the Jewish ruling authorities. In chapter 5 of Acts, verses 27 through 29, they say this. When they had brought them, they set them before the council and the high priest. And now the high priest is involved. He's, I mean, he's like the president of the Jews. And the high priest questioned them saying, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. So how do Peter and the apostles respond to that? They answer, we must obey God rather than men. In other words, obedience to God supersedes obedience to government. When the two are in conflict, we have no choice. We, we, we have no option. We will obey God, regardless of what the consequences were. So what are the consequences for the apostles in that setting? What happened when they said, in fact, no, I'm refusing to obey you. I'm going to keep teaching in this name. Then they bring them back before them just a few verses later in Acts chapter 5. And, and, and they say this, when they had called them in, when they had called in the apostles, they beat them. They beat them. So there was a consequence for their having disobeyed the ruling authorities and having obeyed God instead. There, there was a consequence for them. They were beaten. And then they charged them, yet again, not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then they let them go. So what did these apostles do? You can probably guess. Verse 41, then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name Verse 42, and then every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. They were disobeying the governing authorities over them. Why? Because the governing authorities were requiring them to stop doing something that Jesus clearly told them to not stop doing. And so they chose to obey God rather than man. Now, an important thing for us to, to note here, an important distinction to make when using this exception, this exception to the rule of let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, we need to be very clear that this, is, this exception is speaking very specifically about cases in which we're required to violate the word of God. Not what we think or feel God might be telling us to do. 
So, you know, if I go outside and, 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 and I decide that I, I feel like God's telling me to go 80 miles an hour in a 70 mile an hour zone. No, that, that's, that's, that's subjectively seeking to understand what God is leading me to do. We need to turn to God's word. If I go to your house and I say, I feel like God is telling me to take your truck, that's theft, okay? And I, I deserve to pay a penalty and a fine, be thrown in jail for that. It, th- that's a silly example, but it goes to show you when you begin to get into the concept of civil disobedience, things get much grayer. Because how do you define that? How do you put, put a boundary around that? But notice here how the manner in which they disobeyed, they were respectful. They, they, they were respectful in how they disobeyed. They weren't arrogant and quarrelsome and mean. They said, whether it is right in the sight of God or man, to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. And you must judge because you are the governing authorities. And whatever has to happen as a result of your judgment has to happen to me. I understand that. But I have to obey God rather than man. So they were respectful. That's part of subjecting ourselves to the governing authorities. Recognizing that there is an authority. Even when I'm required by God's word to disobey. Even when Peter and John were in custody. Or or later in Acts when Paul and Silas are thrown in, in prison. Unjustly and unfairly, right? They don't send word out to the other believers to send out a mob to take over the governing authorities, to bust them out of jail, or to start a rebellion to overthrow the governing authorities. No, they send word to ask the believers to pray for them that they might have the boldness to keep preaching Jesus regardless of what happens to them. That's what it looks like to disobey the government when there is a conflict between what the government is requiring and what God requires of us in his word in a way that is respectful and as law-abiding as possible. Another example of this from Scripture would be um, in the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 1, the king of Babylon gave orders for Daniel and the other exiles to, to eat the king's food and to drink the king's wine. And Daniel realizes, you know what, if I do that, then I'm violating God's directives for the Israelites at this time, at this season. God told them what you're to eat, what you're not to eat. And what the king was providing wasn't kosher, if you will. And so he says, listen, he doesn't bow up about it, but he respectfully asks if he could eat vegetables, And just use that as a trial and see how things work out and see if I end up being just as healthy or healthier. And that's what they allow him to do, and it works out for him and his compatriots quite nicely. But then two chapters later, in Daniel chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? King Nebuchadnezzar says, hey, everyone must bow down to this golden image When you hear the harp, when you hear the lyre, when you hear the music, you need to bow down to this golden image. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these Hebrew uh, children, they knew that that was a clear violation of God's word. You shall have no other gods before me, Scripture says. You shall not make for yourself a graven image in the form of a god and worship it. You shall worship Yahweh alone. And so... They didn't do it. They refused to bow down to the golden image. 
what did they get as a result? They got the fiery furnace. Get thrown into the fiery furnace. And how did they face that? How did they face the fiery furnace? They didn't complain. They didn't cry out, hey, this isn't fair. They didn't even try to flee. They just said to the king very plainly, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, they said, we want you to know, your majesty. Do you hear the respect? This this is a tyrant who is throwing them in a fire. He says, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. When government requires us to do something that clearly in Scripture tells us that we shouldn't do, and where government tells us that we, that we shouldn't do, that we can't do, that we're not allowed to do, that which we are told in Scripture we must do, then we must obey God rather than man. We must disobey the governing authorities. This idea of allegiance to God superseding allegiance to government is also seen in Jesus in his dealings with Pontius Pilate. In Matthew chapter 22, um, excuse me, this allegiance to God superseding is, is also seen in Jesus um, during that time. The Pharisees were trying to, to trip Jesus up during this time. Uh, they were setting a trap for him. And so they asked Jesus a question in this setting in Matthew 22, verses 17 through 21. It says, tell us then, the Pharisees asked, tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarii. And Jesus asked them, Whose likeness and inscription is this on the coin? They said, It's Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and render to God the things that are God's. In other words, Caesar's authority is superseded by God's authority. Because when those two are in conflict, Peter says we must obey God rather than man. Caesar's authority came from God's authority. This second exception to the rule is much, much less clear. So the rule again is let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. That's the rule. Except, first of all, when, when doing so will require you to disobey God's word. That's the first exception. The second ex- exception is much less clear. And that is when the government is so immoral or so unjust that action must be taken to remedy government itself. With, with the first exception, it's the government requiring us to do something that Scripture says we shouldn't. And if we do that, which Scripture says we shouldn't, then we are becoming immoral or we are becoming unjust. With the second exception, it is government itself that has become immoral. It's government itself that has become unjust to the point where something needs to be done. Now, this exception is wrought with all sorts of difficulties, such as... How immoral is so immoral that action must be taken against the government? Who determines that immorality? What's the standard for that? And what kind of action should be taken against the government? There's all kinds of different actions that could be taken. 
What level of injustice just requires a march? What level of injustice requires a sit-in that by itself might require one to break laws in order to do that sit-in? Sit in. Like when Rosa Parks in Montgomery, Alabama, broke segregation laws by sitting in a whites-only section of a Montgomery City bus. That injustice required her to break that law. But what about what level of injustice or immorality on the part of the government necessitates even citizens taking up arms against that government in order to replace it? It's happened twice in our country on a very large scale. Once in the Revolutionary War, our war of independence from our governing authority, England, and the other time in a civil war, when the southern states rebelled against the U.S. federal government. Which of those was a just cause for disobeying government, if any? These are situations that require great discernment, a lot of prayer, a lot of, a lot of wisdom. And I, and I believe that we should be very slow to condemn other believers in Christ who are convicted that they must or must not take action in these different situations. But the rule remains the same. The rule is solid. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. There are a couple of exceptions, but let's not focus on that. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. That is the rule under all of this. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. Now, I want to cover one other piece of this passage uh, that comes from the second half of verse 1 all the way through verse 2. Paul here gives us the first reason for why we ought to do this, for why we ought to let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, why we ought to be subject to the government He says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. So the first reason why we should be subject to the governing authorities, first of three reasons, we'll cover the next two next week. First reason is because all authority comes from and is instituted by God. All authority, all these governing authorities that we're talking about, all authority comes from God and is instituted by God. Now we, we see that in three parts, and, and Paul develops these one, builds these one on the other. The first part comes from verse 1. There is no authority except from God. So all authority originates in God. All authority comes from God. Any authority that anyone or any government has, it originated with God. It is simply borrowed authority. That authority came from God. Jesus affirms this idea of borrowed authority in his interaction with with Pontius Pilate. In John chapter 19, we have that part of his story. Jesus was arrested He was put in that mock trial before uh, the high priest. And then they take him to Pontius Pilate. They don't want to do the dirty deed themselves. And so they take him to uh, the uh, Roman governor, Pilate. Pilate tries to release him. 
but the mob calls for Barabbas to be released instead. And so Pilate has Jesus flogged, thinking that that will do it. But then the mob says that's not enough, and they call for his crucifixion. And so Pilate goes in again. He goes back into his home there to speak with Jesus. And I'll pick up the story in verse 9 of John 19. Pilate entered his headquarters again, and he said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Listen to Jesus' response. You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. The, the authority that Pilate had was borrowed authority. It was authority that had been lended to Pilate for a time from God himself. This is also part of why God's authority supersedes man's authority, because man's authority originates with God. But there's a second part to all this. First, all authority comes from God. Second, those governing authorities that exist, Paul says, have been instituted by God. In other words, God is sovereign over all governments and all government rulers. He is sovereign over them all, and Paul says he institutes or ordains them all. Now, there's a couple of massive implications that we have to deal with as a result of that statement from Paul. The first is somewhat benign, but it's important for us in America to note, and that is that there is not a single kind of God-ordained government. Sometimes we get ourselves mixed up in this in our Western democracy. It's, 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 it's not just Western de democracy. It's not just conservatism. It's not just a Republican party. There is not a single kind of God-ordained government at all. And sometimes we wrestle with this in the U.S. in our day and in our time. And we, we seek to, as, as one commentator noted, uh, wrap up the Bible with an American flag. There is not one single kind of God-ordained government. They're all God-ordained. But that leads to the second and more serious implication, and that is that God ordained all governments and all rulers, even the evil ones, even the totalitarian dictators, Paul's already talked about a totalitarian dictator in this very letter. Back in Romans chapter 9, chapter 9, verse 17, he quotes from the Old Testament. He says, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, this is God speaking to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Who raised up Pharaoh? Who put Pharaoh in charge over Egypt? God did. And yet it is this Pharaoh who ends up putting an entire ethnic population in slavery and forces them to do hard labor for centuries. And later in that book, this is Pharaoh who orders the execution of all male-born Hebrew children. Pharaoh's a bad dude. 
And yet it was God who put him in power. He instituted that governing authority. Now, in Pharaoh's case, we're given the privilege of knowing why God would do such a thing. He tells us in that verse we just read, For this very purpose, Pharaoh, I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And we know the story of the Exodus, and we know what happened to Moses and the Israelites, and we know that picture of of God redeeming his people, and how he used Pharaoh and Pharaoh's disobedience in that setting to glorify God. But we're not always given the reason why God would do such a thing. Unfortunately, most of the time, we're not given the reason why God would sovereignly allow some dictators to come to rule. Just as we're usually never given the reason why God would allow most kinds of evil in the world. Why did God allow Hitler to come to power? A madman who would order the annihilation of over six million Jews. Why, why would God do that? We, we don't know. We don't know, aside from knowing that God's ways are not our ways. That God's ways are, are, are higher than our ways. And that everything that he does is ultimately for our good and his glory, even if we don't know how we can connect the dots. But there is coming a day when we will see how all that gets worked out, but it's probably not going to be on this side of a grave. But the third part of this statement is where the rubber meets the road here. So the first part is all authority is God's. So that's where it all originates. Secondly, All governing authorities are instituted by God. So the authority comes from God, and God actively, under his providence, he institutes them. Third part, if you resist the governing authority, you're resisting God. This comes here from verse 2. It's where where Paul pulls together all these implications of this first reason why we're to be subject to the governing authorities. Verse 2 says, Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. In other words, if if all authority is God's, and if God alone institutes all governing authorities, then those, those who resist those governing authorities are resisting God and ought to expect to incur judgment as a result. Now clearly those those exceptions that we mentioned earlier are also at play here. We could talk about Dietrich Bonhoeffer during that time when Hitler was at rule. A Christian pastor who stood up against that and spoke out against that and he was sent to prison as a result and ended up dying there. But what is this judgment that Paul is referring to that we should expect to incur judgment? Some, some say that this is referring to the judgment of God and, and point to the, the judgment that God will pour out in the end times, in the last days. Others say this is referring to the judgment that God will deliver through the vehicle of the governing authorities whom he put in place for that purpose. I think it's both. I think it's both. Uh, the wrath of God is mentioned by name here twice in verse 4 and verse 5, and it seems to indicate somewhat of an eschatological end time pouring out of God's wrath 
on those who don't submit themselves to the governing authorities and in resisting the governing authorities are resisting God and one day will be held to account for that by God. But I think also the context of this passage is clearly talking about how government is God's instrument to do this. He says there in verse 4, he is, speaking of government, personifying government as a he, he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And this is going to lead into next week's study as we begin to unpack the second reason for being subject to governing authorities, and that is that government has the right to punish evil and restrain evil, and that we ought to expect that if we disobey. So in context here, what is Paul doing? Go all the way back to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, in view of God's mercies. In in view of what Paul has laid out in chapters 1 through 11, this glorious picture of the gospel, this, this, this very real picture of how depraved we are and how undeserving we are of God's grace, and yet... God loved us enough and and desired to redeem us back to himself enough to send his son Jesus Christ that though we have no righteousness to make ourselves acceptable to God, God, God sent Jesus to live the perfect life so that by faith in him we might have his righteousness of our own. And now he says, in light of those mercies, in view of those mercies, don't be conformed to the pattern of the world. Instead, be transformed by the renewing of the mind. You're to live differently believers in Christ. You're to live differently. And this is one of those ways in which we're to live differently. Not like the world around us in relation to the government. We are to be subject to the governing authorities. That is the rule. There are exceptions to that and we can work through that. But the rule is to be subject to the governing authorities. Why? So that God through us might be glorified. So that he might show himself that we are a transformed people. We don't look like everyone else around us. We live differently. We accept those consequences of disobeying when we have to disobey and obeying even when it's hard, even when it's going to mean consequences for us from that government. We endure that and we persevere through that. And in so doing, we bring glory to God. May we be so changed as a people that we reflect that and we reflect his glory to a lost world. Church, it is only through Christ in us that we can do this. This is hard when we think about how we as Christians do this in America, but also how how Christians do this in other parts of the world where it's much, much more difficult. We can only do this through Christ who is in us. Let us lean on him for that strength. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this passage of Scripture that is challenging. It's challenging to... Not necessarily to understand, but to apply. And God, we ask that you'd give us wisdom in those gray areas. And Lord, we also pray that you'd give us strength and perseverance in those areas that are not gray, that simply require us to trust you. Whether it's obeying the government when it seems hard, or whether it's disobeying the government when you tell us to do otherwise. 
Help us to trust you in those situations. We pray that you'd be with our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who are enduring, enduring very real persecution. The, the things that we talk about in abstract, they are living out in their very life. We pray that you would encourage them. We, we, we pray, Father, not necessarily that you would remove them from that, but, Lord, that you would sustain them in the midst of that and that you would use them in those situations, Lord, to bring glory to your name and build your kingdom in this kingdom. But Lord, help us. Help us to follow you. Help us to worship you as we seek to live this out. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.